Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. I think my first response to the great parody singer Weird Al Yankovic was anger. I was about uh, five years old, and my brother and I had recently developed a uh, breakdancing routine to Michael Jackson's song, Beat It. Please don't try to picture that right now, by the way. Uh, In the simplicity of early childhood, I, I couldn't see the subtle genius of Weird Al's parody, Eat It. To me, there was something sacrilegious in it, something wrong. How could this Weird Al sleep knowing that he had desecrated sonic holy ground? I've since recanted, and though I definitely don't call myself a Weird Al fan, I'm fascinated by the man's recent uh, parody biopic. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm told it's really good. Um, It's called Weird. So when uh, my wife, Jen, told me that Al was recently interviewed on NPR and that that interview helped illuminate one of my main points for today, I had some real repentance to do. I'm, I'm sorry, Al. In the interview... Terry Gross asks Weird Al about his parents' tragic death in 2004. She says, I know you're a Christian. How do you explain yourself when a tragedy like this? How do you explain to yourself when a tragedy like this happens? And, And there's something defiant in her voice when she asks this, something taunting. It's almost as if she's manifesting the spirit of Job's wife, saying, How does the meaningless death of your parents fit into your narrative? How can you not curse God? But Al responds calmly, and with the most theologically sound response to suffering I think I've heard on the radio. He says this, I don't have any kind of greater explanation for it. It's horribly sad. It's horribly unfortunate. And yet, I don't know how to explain it other than that. And you just kind of deal with it the best way you can. There's no getting over it. I've never really gotten over it, but I've learned to accept it. And now that sense of loss is just something, it's, it's part of my life now, he says. Now whether or not Al knew it, he was echoing a similar response to suffering described by theologian Stanley Hauerwas. Hauerwas says that in the face of suffering or helping someone else who is suffering, the worst thing we can do is try to explain their suffering. Hauerwas calls this naming the silences. He says this, silences drip off the edges of words. Oftentimes, we're too noisy around people who are suffering by trying to make things okay. What they absolutely need is presence. They need us to be there. Hauerwas argues that the only real answer that we have to suffering is presence, both the presence of a friend and the presence of the Lord. He goes on to say, to be with the suffering is first and foremost to be with them, just to be present. 
Job's friends, he says, have such a bad rap generally. But originally, they saw Job from afar, and they went and sat silently with him for days. I think that's a sign of goodness, he says. Hauerwas reminds listeners about the psalmist's relationship with suffering. And he paraphrases the imprecatory psalms, saying this, I kept the law. It's my delight. My friends have betrayed me. My enemies mock me. My life is in absolute shambles. But you are God. And that means everything, that you are God. So the idea, Hauerwas says, that somehow or the other our lives are meant to be free from suffering just doesn't make sense. Both Stanley Hauerwas and Weird Al are saying the same thing. Suffering, especially long-term suffering, doesn't need to be explained. It can't be explained, but it can be comforted. In Isaiah's prophetic poem we just read, we're invited into comfort within a world that suffers, that yearns for words in silences, a world that reaches out to cure suffering in its own power. The people suffer under the hands of the Assyrians. They search for a cure in geopolitics, but but are ultimately comforted by the promise of the presence of Yahweh. We'll see that in Matthew, Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. He is the response to the real problem of suffering, the separated, sinful heart. And finally, St. James will encourage the church to suffer patiently, being present with one another, being the church. The promise in Isaiah is perfected in Jesus' presence and expanded to the church. Together, these passages, the passages we've read for today, model for the Christian comfort in silences. We can wait patiently for the Lord being present with one another, and with, and with him because of who he is. He is trustworthy. His presence is our hope. We're trained through the scriptures during Advent not to explain away suffering or to simply grit our teeth and bear it, but rather to, in, in the face of suffering, enter into each other's presence and into the presence of the Lord and there be comforted. On the first Sunday of Advent, James, um, not St. James, James Steinbeck, uh, showed us that Isaiah's prophecy is responding to a specific Jewish uh, apostasy, or heresy even. Um, Israel and Judah had begun playing geopolitical games in the face of invaders, seeking alliances with Egypt and Babylon to fend off Assyria. Last week, Father Jordan uh, pointed out that like Weird Al and like all of us, the people of Israel had stumps in their lives, hopes and expectations that at one point looked prolific but have since been cut off. Today we find Israel in the same place in Isaiah 35. Hope has been promised, but the shoots have yet to sprout. In an attempt to fill that vacant place, to fill that empty place, to protect themselves from Assyrian invasion, they enter into pacts with neighboring nations. The people who are supposed to be a light to all nations fling themselves at the mercy of those nations, the kings and the armies that surround them. This is an overtly theological act. 
It declares that God's chosen people don't believe that Yahweh can protect them. Instead, they need horses and swords and chariots. Isaiah's prophecy calls Israel back to the practiced faith in Yahweh that would save them. In a sense, Isaiah 35 reads like a dystopian novel in in reverse. What was made desolate by invasion will be refreshed and redeemed by the provision of the Lord. This comes first in a reversal of actual desolation. The dry land will erupt in bloom, and the lands laid bare would be bejeweled with Lebanon's cedars. This makes me think of Christmas lights. Bright, twinkling lights of redemption against the cold, quiet snow. And this, friends, is the redemptive love of our Lord. Where there is desolation, he wants to restore. Where there's death, he wants to bring life. He wants to breathe into a muddy corpse. He wants to call into a tomb, Lazarus, come out. And he wants to speak to you today. The desert shall rejoice. It will, blow, it will blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Under the Mosaic Covenant, Israel's identity as God's people was tied to the land. So when Isaiah describes the land's restoration, he's describing the restoration of the identity of the people. One of the most insidious effects of human suffering is the loss of identity in the suffering. We feel like we become our ailments. The cancer patient seems to become the cancer. The depressed person seems to become their depression. But Yahweh's promise speaks truth in the face of that unreality. He says to Israel, you are not your desolation. You are the place and people of beauty I've made you to be. Yahweh restores more than the land. He restores identity. He restores dignity to the sufferer. Egypt and Babylon can't can't offer that. To ally with them is to give up their Jewish identity. Just as explaining suffering cannot offer restoration of identity. Rather, an explanation hands one's identity over to the explanation. The explanation becomes the object of worship, supplanting the source of identity himself. Isaiah's prophecy then shifts from the land to the restoration of the hearts of the people. Isaiah knows that the real problem with people is human nature, sinful nature. The deep problem for the people of God isn't the impending political destruction that's out there, but separation from God. Isaiah, seeing, or in Isaiah, seeing and hearing are symbols of spiritual stubbornness. The people have eyes, but they can't see the Lord. They have ears, but they refuse to listen to him. Isaiah prophesies that then, in the future, the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The only cure for separation from God is presence with him, but the eyes and ears of the people, and thus the people themselves, need to be redeemed in order to receive his presence. And so, when John the Baptist, 
imprisoned at the end of his life, is looking for hope, looking for the promise that Jesus is indeed the Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus responds to him with Isaiah's words. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus assures John that the, that of the hope that he, Jesus, is the promised presence of God. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. During Advent, we're invited into the hope provided for John. The hope of God's presence in the face of our suffering. This hope is now and future. It's already and not yet. In the incarnation, in God becoming human in Jesus, we are assured that God does not sit on a lofty throne watching all of time tick down like a great cosmic clock. He was made present with his creation, so longing for fellowship with humans that he became human, emptying himself. So friends, take comfort. Christ is with you. The blind see, the deaf hear, and the lame walk. And if you need evidence of that, look around you. We are the blind and the deaf and the lame. We are the ransomed, set free by his grace to see him and to hear his word and to walk in his ways. We are saved into his presence. And while right now, today, we do suffer We do not suffer alone. Christ's presence is also promised for tomorrow. In the creed, we we rehearse every week, if not um, every day, uh, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is a rehearsal of hope. And just as Isaiah promised Jesus' first coming to the suffering Israel, so St. John promises Jesus' return to comfort Israel the suffering church. In Revelation 22, we hear Jesus say, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each, for, each one for what he's done. This promised presence frees the believer from seeking for an answer for why we, why we suffer. It frees us from naming the silences. He will fill the silences with his recompense, his repayment. He is faithful and he will do it. So while in Isaiah's prophecy we find the promise of restoration, in Jesus we, f- we find the fulfillment of God's restoration, both present and future. God's response to suffering, the suffering of his people, is not to explain it, but to offer himself. His presence in, his presence in comfort and recompense. Suffering cannot be explained. When we, try to, when we try to explain it, it's an attempt to own it or to, or to master it and ultimately to avoid it. But we live in a world plagued by Assyrian invasions and Russian invasions, by spiritual blindness and deafness and by physical cancers and, and incurable diseases. St. Paul puts it best when he says, the whole of creation groans, but those groans are birth pains. And that means that there is life to come. There will be redemption. There is pain now, and I don't want to dismiss that, just as I wouldn't dismiss my wife's pains during birth. 
Guys, that's a tip. Don't do that. But God has proven faithful. First to Israel by restoring the land, and now to all nations, even if they are fools, as Isaiah reminds us. You see, God's response to human suffering is the incarnation. Matthew's gospel is bookended by the incarnation. He starts by saying that Jesus was in the incarnation of Yahweh. Behold, he says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in the final words of the gospel, Jesus promises continued incarnation. Behold, he says, I am with you always. In Advent, we learn to wait patiently in our suffering, knowing that there will be recompense, that there will be redemption, and that we do not wait alone. Jesus, who is God with us, is present with us in our suffering. I'd like to show you a little bit about what that presence looks like uh, in my own life. When our son Elijah was born, he couldn't breathe on his own. Jen's pregnancy was considered high risk. So by God's grace, Elijah's birth was attended by NICU staff. Doctors who knew exactly what to do when things go terribly wrong. Elijah was immediately intubated and the next day medevaced from our home in Orange County to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And for the next five months, Elijah was in the NICU as doctors struggled and failed to figure out why he wasn't able to breathe on his own. He was attached to a myriad of machines, some of which took breaths for him. Others administered medications that quieted the muscles in his body that rejected the tube through which his breath came. It took a team of two nurses and Jen and myself to lift him from his incubator so that we could hold him. And even then, the placement of his breathing tube was so precarious that we couldn't hold him for long without risking his deoxygenation. It was eventually determined that Elijah would would need a tracheostomy. And because he would be on mechanical ventilation for an indeterminate amount of time, he would need to be fed through a G-tube placed in his stomach. The next four years for our little family revolved around caring for an infant and then a toddler with severe medical needs. Many of the icons of raising an infant were replaced. Baby bottles were replaced by feeding tubes. Spit-up rags were replaced by tracheostomy ties. Our family van was transformed into a simplified ambulance. Some weeks, especially early on, every day felt like a battle for Elijah's life. Medical equipment wouldn't come when it was supposed to come. At-home nurses would, would fall asleep on their overnight shifts, and equipment alarms and fear plagued Jen's and my sleep. Some weeks, an odd normalcy settled in that was riddled with the fear that, of what the next week would look like. Through the toughest spots, though, we experienced presence. Our friend Becky would sit with us for hours in the NICU, just being there with us. My little sister Amanda would drive through horrific L.A. traffic again just to sit and be with us. My friend Ranger Zach, who's called Ranger Zach because he's a park ranger, showed us around L.A. 
and introduced us to, to a mommy burger and prayed. On Sunday mornings, we would worship with our little church, Zoe, in San Juan. No one tried to theologize our suffering for us. No one tried to explain what was happening to our family. Instead, our church prayed. Sometimes, on the hardest days, they gathered the elders and laid hands and prayed. Other times, they would just sit and listen after service, sometimes for hours. While Elijah was in the NICU, and in the months that followed, I was glued to John's revelation. I needed to know that Jesus was coming back, and he always assured me in the deepest places in my heart that he was. Elijah's gotten off of his machines now. He can breathe on his own. He's been diagnosed with idiopathic muscular myopathy, which is just a long way of saying that his muscles don't work like typical ones, and no one's really sure why. And I'd be lying if I told you that Jen and I don't feel the occasional sting of the question, for how long will things be normal? As you can imagine, the pandemic has been hard for us. When Elijah gets sick, it can be very dangerous. But through all this, we've been comforted by the consistent presence of the Lord's people, which is why when we felt the call to move from our home in Southern California to Colorado, the first thing we did was find, before we found a place to live, was to find a church, this church. And we've continued to be comforted and affirmed by the people of Advent. So thank you. St. James encourages the church to be as Christ, present in the face of suffering. James calls all those who are suffering into community, into the life of the church. And he calls the church to be present with the suffering. He says this, and while we read this, I want you to picture all of these people in, in one place, in one church at the same time. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. All of these things exist at the same time within the church. There is power in the presence of the Lord, and there is power in our ability to be present as the church. And so I ask you, if you're suffering today, please do not suffer alone. We're a community of Christ, committed not to playing church, but to being the church. And we'd love to pray with you, to usher you into his presence, and to simply be present with you. And if you know someone who's suffering, who's going through a lot of suffering right now, resist the temptation to name the silences, to explain the suffering. I know it's hard because we want to end the suffering of those we love. But have faith. Know that the incarnate God will redeem he will bring his recompense. He will be present. Church, this is Advent. And during this season, we're trained in the things of faith. We're trained to hold in tension the presence of the Lord and the suffering of a world in hopeful expectation that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We're given one to another as little Christmas lights, 
against the background of a dark, dark world, knowing that one day the glory of God will outshine the sun and the moon by the lamp of the Lamb. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.